This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. You know, the problem in doing this autobiography is that sometimes I just don't have a name for a chapter because there are a whole bunch of little stories I want to tell. So I could have called this Odds and Ends again, which is what this really is, but I'm just going to call it Stories. Okay? Anyway, the stories are varied, they're different, but they're all kind of interesting stories of what happened to me when I was working at Live 105 in San Francisco. Now, you've got to remember, up to this point, I had come back to San Francisco from New York. I went to KMEL for a couple of years, and then for another couple of years, I was at the Quake. But ultimately, one thing led to another, and I wound up at a thing called Hot Hits Kits, which remained that way for about a year and a half, and then it became Live 105. And that's where I am, doing a very successful morning show. You know, I'm not one to brag. I'm one to actually not brag about what I do and my accomplishments. But I've got to say, this show was awfully popular. In fact, dare I say, fucking popular. We were the number one morning radio show that wasn't a news show, okay? Uh, News was number one, but for entertainment, music, whatever, it was us in the morning. And we were kicking ass and taking names. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because I had a kind of power that I didn't realize at the time, but listening to old recordings, I suddenly realized I do. For instance, when it came to advertisers, they charged a premium charge for me to do a live spot. Uh, That would be a commercial that I was doing personally and kind of implicitly had my personal endorsement. Now, I was very particular about doing this, that I, A, wanted to do them only for products that I had tested. In other words, you got to send me your product or have me go to your product or whatever. And if I liked the way you were doing business and if your claims were correct and not overstated and your product would not hurt my uh, audience, then I do the live spot then I could kind of give that implicit endorsement. And an implicit endorsement by me to any product made a fortune for that particular sponsor. I have to, uh, Somehow I had this ability to sell a product. Now sometimes I kind of didn't sell the product. I kind of anti-sold the product, you know. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Vermont Teddy Bears. These were these teddy bears that came out of Vermont. It was a little company run by a very sweet little guy. And uh, he, uh, he was starting to advertise on radio. And they came to me and said, would you like to uh, do the Vermont teddy bears? I said, well, let me see one. I love them. They were wonderful. And so I started doing spots for them. And uh, one of the pictures I did at one time was, this is the way uh, Vermont teddy bear is the best way to tell your girlfriend I'm sorry I had sex with your best friend. You know, things like that. And, and he was an advertiser who kind of understood this. He didn't mind me kind of doing the anti-commercial, right? Uh, and so consequently, he sold a shitload of Vermont teddy bears. I mean, it's Valentine's Day. Hey, 
you know, get a Valentine's bear for your... And I was the number one salesman for Vermont teddy bear anywhere in the country. And by the way, that included Howard Stern. He sold less than I did. He was on in several markets. I was on in one. So these getting these live spots, getting me to do a live spot, was a, a bonus for an advertiser. And they paid extra money for those ads. And at one point, my business manager came up with an idea during a contract renewal and said, uh, Alex has to get $50 for every time he reads one of those spots. So they simply added 50 bucks to the price of the spot. And uh, I was making, I would say, we do three of them a day, okay? How much is that a week? Uh, it, it got to make me a lot of money over the year. It added to like fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to my income. Um, but anyway, so I, I was doing, so that's how successful the show was. I think that's what I'm trying to, uh, to put across here. And that uh, I could uh, hold a, uh, a comedy show somewhere. And part of my contract said that I could plug those comedy shows on my program without having to pay for advertising. And uh, every one of those shows sold out. It's, you know, and it didn't matter what the size of the crowd was. In other words, I could go into a place in Palo Alto and sell out a 600-seat uh, venue, two shows, okay, sold. And the biggest one, of course, was the show that we did at the Frost Amphitheater at Stanford University. That one had 9,000 people. That, sh now, that shows you how popular my show was. And you know something? I don't know if I really truly appreciated how powerful it was. I don't think I truly knew the power of my endorsement, the power of my blessing on a comedian. Uh, I took comedians who nobody ever heard of and turned them into stars. They could sell out any place they played in the Bay Area. So I, I was becoming a real financial boon uh, to the comedy business, uh, to my advertisers, and most of all to my radio station, which was making a fortune off the program. I can't say that my salary, uh, when I started making them a lot of that money, was commensurate with what they were making, but uh, for the time being, they were making a lot of money. I mean, I would say, you know, this was way back in the, uh, that, this is way back in the 80s. This station off a morning show, I think, was making $9 million, $10 million a year in advertising. Of course, I was only getting about $150,000 at the beginning. So they, they, they did very well. And the company, Intercom, uh, I think I probably bought them a couple of radio stations, okay, at that time. At that time, you could buy a radio station pretty cheap. They were selling for like a million dollars and less. Anyway, so that it's it's a really successful show, and with success come problems, because you are popular, you then become a, a target. Uh, you then have a situation where you say something wrong, and there's trouble. Okay, and I want to tell you about a couple of those stories. Uh, first of all, uh, let me talk to you about uh, the people's people over Charles Jr. Uh, Carl's Jr. is an advertiser, hamburgers, you know, you know the company. And uh, they were an advertiser on our radio show. And uh, I didn't do them live. They were recorded spots. And um, all of a sudden, we get a call 
not me, but my boss, Ed Cramp, gets a call from the advertiser. Uh, we're going to stop advertising on your show. And he said, well, why? And he said, well, we've gotten at least 50 letters from people alleging that certain things were said on your radio program in the morning, and we don't want to be associated with that kind of behavior. Now, you have to ask yourself a question when all of a sudden there are 50 letters or more going to an advertiser, what did I say? And when we were allowed to see some of those letters, they were all over the place. He said this, and Sam Kinison was on the show and said that, and, and most of them were wrong, by the most. Most of them were lies. Most of them were fabrications of what I had said. And then we looked at the postmarks on the, on the letters, and the letters were postmarked from various places. Uh, they were not all from, like, one place. We figured this could be, like, one person, right? But it didn't appear to be one person. So my boss decided he was going to go out, and I can't remember the detective's name, and hire the best detective in San Francisco. He was kind of known as San Francisco's modern Sam Spade, who was a fictional character by Dashiell Hammett, who was a detective in the, in the Maltese Falcon. And this guy was literally your grizzled, um, tough-minded um, private eye. And my boss told him the story. And he said, well, it doesn't look good. It looks like somebody is out to get you. And so we sent the uh, detective on his way to try and find out what the hell was going on. And a couple of weeks pass, and finally he comes back to us and says, it's one guy. And he, uh, I don't know how he did his super sleuthing, because we certainly, in our trying, couldn't come up with it. But he said he found out who the person was. Uh, and I said, we said, what, what are we going to do about this? He says, it's one guy. He's sending all these letters to Carl's Jr. Uh, and I said, wow, wow, that's, you know, that's terrible. He says, and I know who the guy is. And uh, he said, here's what we're going to do. He says, you can't really sue the guy because you don't have proof, okay, that it's him. But I know it's him. So what we do is we let him know we know it's him. And the letters will probably stop. And sure enough, he got a hold of this guy and said, we know what you've been doing. We know how you've been sending these false letters about things that have been said on the Alex Bennett program to Carl's Jr. And, uh, and there were a few other advertisers also that he had sent these to as well. And uh, he said, if you don't stop, we're going to have you arrested. And that was it. The letters stopped. There were no more complaints. But there was one other aspect of the Carl's Jr. story that I got to tell you. Because my boss, Ed Krampf, gutsy guy. I, you know, I, if I was crazy, he was crazier. I mean, he would take chances. He took a chance on me. He took a chance on changing the uh, format of the radio station without letting the guy back in Philadelphia know they were doing it. Uh, in fact, he told me a story just the other day that whenever the boss from Philadelphia would call and they had changed the music format, 
the uh, receptionist was ordered not to put him on hold because he didn't want him to hear the music. <laughs> but that's how ballsy this guy was. Well, he came to me and he said, this Carl's Jr. thing has really gotten to me. This was while we were still looking uh, at, at, at who it might or might not be. He said, and what bothers me most about it is that Carl's Jr. just automatically believes letters that come in from people. And I, you know, we have no way to get this advertiser back. I mean, even if we were to prove it was fake, it might be hard to get them back. So why don't you just sick them? I, I don't know if that was the term he used, but it was like I was an attack dog and I should go on the air now and just blast Carl, Carl's Jr. for what they did. So I went on the air, and I told the story about what was happening, and then I said, Carl's Jr. has stopped advertising on this show. Obviously, they don't care about this show, and obviously, they don't care about you. So I'm telling you now, do not buy hamburgers at Carl's Jr. until they come back advertising on this show. And then I explained also that I wouldn't be telling people to boycott if I didn't think they were being unfair in, take, in withdrawing their advertising. And so all of a sudden, people are going into Carl's Jr. and saying, we're not going to buy your hamburgers anymore because you won't advertise on the Alex Bennett program and blah, 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 blah. Well, it seems that all the franchises in San Francisco were owned by one guy. It wasn't owned by Carl's Jr. He paid them a franchise fee. He had all these stores. And so he asked to meet with us. And he came to us and he said, what's going on here? And we told him that Carl's Jr. had stopped advertising because of all these phony letters that they had received and that they're not advertising on our show anymore. And he says, well, my daughter loves Alex's show. And uh, I've heard it and I don't mind it either. I listen to it with her in the car as I'm driving her to school. He said, let me get a hold of Carl's Jr., and he got a hold of Carl's Jr. And he said, what are you doing ruining my business? You're withdrawing advertising in San Francisco where I am your prime franchisee. And you're thereby hurting my business. And also because it's become known that Carl's Jr. won't advertise on the Alex Bennett show, people won't come in and buy my lousy hamburgers. <laughs> he didn't say lousy hamburgers. I'm saying lousy hamburgers. And he said, if you don't stop it right now, I'm just going to stop the franchise. I don't care because you're ruining my business. And within days, Carl's Jr. In fact, Carl Kirsch was his name. I'm trying to remember what his name was. The guy who actually owned Carl's Jr. called us personally to apologize. And... The advertising was restored. This guy, I went on the air, I said, there's this guy, he owns the franchises here. He's a sweet guy. He's been hurt by this whole thing. Go back and buy the hamburgers again. He's been good to us, and he's gotten the advertising back, and uh, please start going into the uh, Carl's Jr.'s stores. And business was back again. And he called us and said, things are terrific and thank you. And Carl's Jr., I think to the end of my time at Live 105, at least in my first initial stint there, remained an advertiser. 
So did uh, the Vermont teddy bear people. So did a lot of people. I was good for advertisers. I could also be bad for them. Now, the other story I want to tell you is, is that, you know, when you're, when you're doing a popular morning radio program, you um, sometimes want to do stunts and things like that. And um, I um, belong to a book club. It, it's a strange thing. I belong to this thing called The Jungle. The Jungle was something that Penn, Gillette, and Teller started with their friends, and it was kind of like a bulletin board, and we'd bulletin board back and forth to each other. And uh, it was a very private kind of club. I still have a wristwatch uh, that Penn and Teller sent every member of the Jungle, because they'd done something with uh, Movado, and said to Movado, well, we not only want money, we want like 20 watches, because they want to take, of all, to, uh, take care of all the people who were on the jungle, and we all got that. We got jungle uh, uh, jackets, said the jungle, and it had Penn and Teller on the back. And um, so this was a little kind of club, and one of the things they decided to do was to all read the same book at the same time. And then we would all review the book at the same time. And the book they chose was a book by Danielle Steele that was her current book at the time, and it was called Star. Now, I got to tell you, I, I read biographies. I'm very good at biographies and at uh, books about current events and about uh, history, uh, but I'm not very good at novels. I just, I never, just never got into reading novels. So anyway, we all went out and we bought Star. And some of the people were reading it and others like me were trying to read it. And I got through the first chapter. And as I got through the first chapter of Daniel Steele's Star, I just was appalled at what I was reading. Now, I'm not a prude, right? But what I was reading, you know, was, uh, uh, well, the story is about Star, and she's a young girl. She is under the age of 16, okay? She's under the age of consent, but she's under the age of 16. And in this first chapter, she has what is a very graphic passage of sex with a stable boy. And I sat there and I said to myself, what's the difference between this and kitty porn? You know? What's the difference between this and pornography? She's talking about, and then he nestled my breasts, and then he caressed my, uh, my Netherlands, and whatever. I mean, I, I could go find the book and read it to you, and you'd be appalled too. So I, I went on the air one day and I said, I explained, you know, with the jungle and what the jungle was and that I was reading a book that they had decided we were all going to read together and it was Daniel Steele's Star. And um, I said, I have never read anything like this in my life. I said, this is kiddie porn. I said, this, this there's one chapter in here in the beginning where she's like 14 and having sex with a stable boy. And I said, it, it, that's just horrible, you know. Uh, and, and anybody else, if they wrote a story like that, uh, it would be considered child porn and the guy would be arrested. I said, Daniel Steele is nothing but a, and I actually didn't coin the term. I had heard the term years earlier. I think maybe you Hefner used it. The term was pious pornographer. I said, this is a woman who's writing books under the pretense of being fine literature and it's nothing more than really hardcore porn. 
And then as a as a uh, additional icing on the cake, I decided to pull a stunt. Now, she lived in a big mansion in San Francisco. It was called the Spreckles Mansion. If you're ever in San Francisco, point uh, have them uh, point you to, in the direction of uh, the Spreckles Mansion. Go see it. It's a beautiful, beautiful old building, although it's quite hard to see now because Daniel Steele, who bought it, Okay, and it's too big a home for any human being, but she bought it. If you, if you see the movie Pal Joey with Frank Sinatra, that's where Club Joey is, okay? But it is just a man. You can't see it because she's built a hedge around it, so you really can't see it. Uh, but it's just a beautiful place. Well, across the street is a park. And uh, I decided that what we would do... <laughs> Now, this was the kind of show I was running at the time. So we had this stunt guy. We called him Chuck Farnham. And Chuck would go out and do crazy stunts and things like that. And I sent Chuck to the park across the street from the Spreckles Mansion. And uh, then uh, I had Chuck start reading aloud from Star, bleeping out certain terms which would make it a little too... How could we call it? Uh, um, gamey. And to add to this, we had a couple with him in the park. They were behind some bushes. And as he read, they would do everything that was in the scene. <laughs> well, luckily we didn't get arrested and um, everything was fine. Except the next thing I knew, Danielle Steele, lawyers were calling the radio station and saying, we want a retraction by Alex Bennett. Is it a retraction for what? For saying that she's a pornographer. Now, you know, there are times when you, when you need to uh, cut bait and run. Uh, I made this little problem for my boss. Uh, we could have fought it and she would have never seen a penny because she was a public figure and I can call her anything I want to. But by the time we got to that, the station might have spent several hundred thousand dollars defending themselves. So the better part of valor is to cut bait and run. And I never wanted to hurt the radio station I was working at. Most of all, I didn't want my boss to have to deal with this thing. And after big consideration, I decided to do a recanting of what I had said. And they wanted a recording of it, too. I had to record it. So I had to recant what I had said about Daniel Steele. Now, to this day, I will maintain that what I said was absolutely right. But I was doing this for the good of the radio station, not for the good of me. I, I would have fought. The, if it was up to me, I would have fought it, okay? But it wasn't my radio station. It wasn't uh, my uh, bottom line. And quite frankly, uh, you know, who was she? Was she worth fighting? Okay. So uh, I did a recanting. I went on the air. I can't remember how I apologized, but it was a backhanded apology. I said, she, she's very bothered by all of this. And I said, my intention is never to hurt anyone. Uh, what I read was somewhat sexually explicit. And, but, uh, you know, she's known as a major writer, and uh, I, I, I guess maybe I was a little overstating it when I called her a pious pornographer. It, it wasn't exactly uh, pulling back on what I had said, but it was an apology.
okay? And I hated doing it. It's the only time, by the way, in my entire career I've had to do that kind of apology. I have done apologies, but because I found out that I was wrong about something and I, I recanted it because I knew I was wrong. But when I knew I was right, I'd never ever had to recant anything I've ever said. So that one situation was very rough on me. But let me just take it a step further. It's a little more fun to the Daniel Steele story. <laughs> While all this was going on, I had somebody on the inside, in Spreckle's mansion, knowing exactly how she was reacting to what I was saying. And it was a guy who I had hired as my bodyguard. And now he was her bodyguard. And he kept coming back to me and telling me all the things that were going on when I was saying this stuff, okay? And the best story of all is that she was there with her daughter one day in her, I don't know, in a main room or something, and she was ranting and raving and said, this slimy little radio guy, and by the way, Daniel Steele's never been known as a nice human being, okay? She said, I just, uh, you know, he called me a pious pornographer, and he said my latest book, Star, well, there was a scene with a, with a young girl having sex in it and that it was child pornography. And her daughter looked at her and said, I've read the book, Mom. It's all there. You're wrong. He's right. It is child pornography. The daughter told her this. Well, she went into a flit and a rage and everything. Um, but anyway, so I had a guy on the inside, so I got to hear all the reactions of, of Daniel Steele and how this thing was going down with her. And the ultimate thing was, of course, he was in her employ, and as part of her employ, he had a credit card. He had a credit card so that if, you know, he ever was out with the daughter and she wanted to buy some lunch, she could pay for lunch. Uh, occasionally he was allowed to have dinner for himself as well on the credit card. So in the middle of all this, we're going to sue you routine that we got, uh, he and I went out and had dinner at a very expensive restaurant in Marin County and put it on her credit card. <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of ways to get even. And even if I had to recant the whole story, having dinner on Danielle Steele was my ultimate comeuppance. But those are just some of the things that happen when, when you're really popular. You can't just say stuff and figure you're going to get away with it. And, you know, for years I had been kind of, people listened to me, but I didn't have that kind of listenership where it was so huge that everything I said was heard. And I had forgotten that things had changed and that every time I said something, if I wasn't careful about what I was going to say, there were going to be massive repercussions. And so was the case with the Danielle Steele thing. But once again, I have to hand it to my old boss, Ed Cramp. I mean, on all these things, he had my back. And, you know, that made it a lot easier, but it also made it a lot harder because I didn't want to do stuff that was going to take up the rest of his day, which in many cases I did. And it wasn't just me. I mean, I had comics on this show, and I had... Uh, uh, the comics who, who would say things about people who were advertisers. And then th that day, 
uh, Ed would get a call from the advertiser and have, did you he say that about me? I remember Bobby Slayton, my old friend Bobby Slayton said something once about McDonald's. And the next thing you know, McDonald's is yelling and screaming at Ed saying, what, what did this guy say? So even the stuff that wasn't me, because I, I've always been kind of a responsible broadcaster. I've always cared about the radio station that I was at and, and protecting them and not causing them too many problems. But, um, uh, you know, you can't tell what a, what a you know, comedian is going to say. Or he might say something and you think it's nothing, and then later on in the day you find out it's a big mess. So that's what happens when you've got a really popular radio program. Uh, you've got a lot of things to atone for. This has been Life in the Passing Lane. It's an autobiography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.